Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. We begin by acknowledging the Gabi Gabi people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast episode is being recorded today, and pay respects to their elders, past and present, and to their parents with children with disabilities. This podcast contains truth, laughter, and the occasional F-word, so it's not really suitable for children. Well, you probably won't hear quite so much swearing among the beans, you know. Well, yeah. <clears throat> not suitable for children. Sometimes you just have to get your shits out. Shit, 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 shit. That's right, this is a language warning. Oh, shit. Hello, peas and beans. Gary Bean here. How are you? Doing all right? That's good. Glad to hear it. No, not so good. Sorry about that. I understand. We do we do get it here. Well, you know, whether you're doing well at the moment or not so well, thanks for putting us in your ears. I know that for the next hour or so, you're going to get to listen to something really good. Now, Marnie Davis Wood is a P who is well known to this tribe. Back in April of 2021, Marnie spoke with Kate and Mandy, and we got to hear something of her daughter Ivy's story then. It's an excellent episode, I have to tell you, so I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you haven't already. Now, today you're going to hear from Daniel, who is Marnie's husband, Ivy's dad. And I have to say that this does create a lovely set of bookends, doesn't it? Marnie's story and Daniel's story with Ivy in the centre. And what a treat it is to get both mum's and dad's perspectives. So a shout out once again to the Queen Peas for pegging out this section of the veggie garden to allow for beans to have a place to be nurtured and cherished as well as peas. Dads, if you're listening, firstly, thanks for listening, and good on you for being there in the life of your pea shoot or bean sprout. But secondly, we want to listen to you as well. Goodness knows it's hard enough to find someone to listen to about things that don't even really matter that much. But for the things that do matter the most to us, things like our families, our children, our partners... Sometimes, you know, it's hard to find someone who cares enough to actually listen. And not just for your own sake, but for the sake of the others who listen to these conversations. You don't have to be invisible, or I guess more accurately, unheard. Get in touch through the Hangout or via a speak pipe or email on the 2Ps website and we just might be able to get in touch and talk. Anyhow, I just felt like I was with a kindred spirit, you know, when I was talking with Daniel, so it was kind of therapeutic for me, in a way. Now, whether you find it therapeutic or not, I'm sure you are going to enjoy it. So, 
Let's meet Daniel and his stellar daughter, Ivy. G'day, Daniel. Hi, Gary. Thanks for this, mate. It's uh, great to talk to you. I think you're back from Scotland into Australia for a couple of months, so this is a great opportunity to catch up with you. Yes. Uh, we'll catch up with why you live in Scotland in a moment too, because that's a significant part of this whole story. But let's get started with Kate and Mandy's three icebreaker questions, uh, if you will. So firstly, is there a piece of music that you would recommend, something that picks you up or is special to you for some reason? Well, uh, as a rule, I think silence is golden. But uh, when I uh, when I do turn to music, yeah, I actually it's good that you mentioned Scotland because I really love Scottish traditional music, not bagpipes. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, uh, like uh, violin instrumentals from traditional tunes. And there's one guy, Duncan Chisholm, who I think is one of Scotland's greatest fiddlers, and he has this song. It's just called "Unknown Air." An air is just a type of song, so it's basically untitled. And it is, um, it is, it's a, it starts off a bit melancholy and then it kind of gets a bit hopeful and then it kind of ends in this really neutral place, which is very strange and beautiful. So it's a great, uh, you know, those days when you just feel like your head is like a jungle inside and you need someone to hack away the vines and just clear <laughs> a do. path for you. It's I that kind of song. Yeah. It does that work for me. I'm going to yeah. check this out. So would you describe it as Celtic? Vaguely, probably a long time back. It um, In, it, it really sounds, yeah. yeah, an air is really, it's meant to be like a violin that's used like a voice. Uh, it's from the same word as aria. So you could almost hear it, hear someone singing it without any, without any instruments. It's that kind of tune. Mm, thank you. Well, I'm definitely going to check that out. Second question, uh, did you win any awards at school? Yeah, I can't really remember. I know I was in the running for a while uh, for, for the school ducks for a few years, but I don't think I ever won that. Um, so I think I would, I'd be inclined to say, no, I didn't actually win anything. I was sort of perpetually a second-place person and a bit of a rat bag as a student, to be honest. I probably didn't deserve very much. Um, but uh, no, I don't think so. Came close. Well, like many who may be described as ratbags while they were at school, you've done very well from what I've you've told also, me. Well, I also went on to become an educator for my sins, so <laughs> it's a bit of karma in it as well. I'm things. sure so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it comes back on you. Um, yes. Okay. Thanks for that. Well, that's, that's good. And so then, thirdly, to launch into our conversation, why would you be described as a bean? Well, uh, I am the father to uh, a, a daughter named Ivy. She's just turned eight last week. Um, uh, my wife, Marnie, has uh, been uh, in conversation with Kate and Mandy before and spoken a bit about her. And Ivy has uh, kind of a range of, uh, of, of things that we deal with. But the one that, that people notice straight away is that she is profoundly deaf um, she has a cochlear implant on one side, which she relies on to hear sounds, including speech. Uh, but her first language is is sign language. Okay, well, let's talk about uh, Ivy. Uh, by the way, hello, Marnie, if you're listening. And uh, yes, we are, you are well known to the peas, Marnie, and uh, in the hangout as well. And thank you for 
encouraging your husband, Daniel, I think, on my behalf to uh, join me. And uh, thank you, mate, for being willing. The, the voices of dads have often been hard to find or hard to hear, not necessarily because they didn't want to talk, although sometimes that's true, but sometimes not being offered a safe place to do it. So that's what we're on about, and I'm so glad you're here, and happy birthday to Ivy, I should say. <laughs> so let's meet Ivy. Can we meet her first? What, describe this little eight-year-old to us. Who is she? What's she like? Ivy is, uh, well, uh, after people realise that she's deaf, or sometimes before they realise that she's deaf, what they realise is that she is absolutely full of energy, um, all sorts of energy. So she'll, you know, physical energy, but also just conversational energy. She describes herself as a chatterbox. And uh, what she loves to chat about is um, anything and everything under the sun that is going to stretch people's brains. So if you meet her for the first time, I reckon you are just as likely to get a discourse on the family tree of the Olympian gods from ancient Greece as you are to get a blow-by-blow -blow recount of what happened to the dam she was building down at the beach with a bucket and spade. She will just pick a topic and run with it and uh, elaborate on it and question you on it and uh, really just um, try to engage you at every possible level of enthusiasm about what whatever is on her mind. Um, and she's also a very um, compassionate person is probably the quality that I think comes through once you've been in, in conversation with her for a little while. She, um, she has a very keen sense of justice and injustice and uh, gets quite... Uh, emotional and concerned about sort of injustice, unfairness, wherever she sees it. And her dream right now, in fact, is to start an animal sanctuary um, for for abused animals or for um, yeah mistreated animals. And uh, you know, when I say that that's her dream, I, I don't I don't just mean that she kind of fantasizes fantasizes about it uh, like an abstract thing, but she's She's been looking at other sanctuaries and trying to crunch numbers and figure out how they get money if they're not selling anything and how do they appeal for volunteers. And she's kind of trying to put together, again, this elaborate, this very elaborate idea of how she could go about uh, creating a place like that to, to alleviate some suffering that she's aware of. So, um, yeah, very imaginative, active and, uh, and compassionate person, I think, is the way I'd describe her. Wow, Daniel, that was brilliant. You've got everyone smiling. What a fantastic <laughs> introduction to this lovely little girl. And, you know, as yeah. parents, we like to take credit for the, the good traits that we see in our children, don't we? <laughs> yes. Um, not so much the others. But yeah. I have to say there is an element of truth in it, isn't there? Something of you and Marnie is clearly being communicated to your lovely daughter at the, this you know, we can tell that you're so articulate and, and intelligent and compassionate yourselves, and a, a, a lot of that is coming through in her. So I just reflect on that as a dad. That was the first thing I thought of. But thank you. I, I love that introduction, and I guess we've got a little bit of a picture in our mind now of dear Ivy, and we're going to talk about your family life and you as a dad. So why don't we start? When I, when I was speaking to you recently, 
I asked you, why do you live in Scotland? And when you explained to me how you got to Scotland, I got so much of the story of your family and of Ivy and her coming into the world. So why don't we go from that angle today? So how did you end up in Scotland and why why are you there? (laughs) Um, The very short version is that uh, I think a lot of people listening to this will be familiar with... um, will be familiar with the journey that you often have to go on when you are trying to find support measures for children who have additional needs, whatever form they may take. And sometimes that journey literally physically takes you from one place to another that you never expected to be, and that's certainly true in our case. That is not to say, though, that we ended up in Scotland uh, as a result of that. I would say that we're in Scotland because uh, there came a time when we were able to make a choice for ourselves rather than um, kind of dependent on a, on a service or something like that. that, that and that is the choice that, that sort of led us to where we are. But um, I'll, I'll try and give you a quick sense of the journey. Um, I am half British. I lived in uh, England and Scotland before I met Marnie in Australia uh, for uh, a few years, quite a few years. I've spent most of my adult life outside of Australia. Um, but we met in Australia and married, and um, we were both coming sort of from an education background. Marnie had primary training. I was coming from university education. And uh, we th- there was an opportunity for us both to move to uh, the Swiss Alps in the centre of Switzerland to teach at a boarding school and to sort of take on a pastoral role with young people at a boarding school there, uh, English and German bilingual. Marnie speaks German among her many other talents. Uh, so we uh, we moved to Switzerland and we were there for two years before Ivy was born. And um, it, it really was the middle of nowhere. Uh, you know, it was a two and a half hour train journey, a two hour drive to the nearest city. Uh, in the hills so when we found out that our daughter was profoundly deaf which was not at birth um it it uh there there were just the the accessibility for us of not just services but um a, a deaf community um uh sign language lessons for ourselves uh, a signing community for Ivy. They, none of this was there, um, and it wasn't even close to where we were. Um, in fact, some of it wasn't even in Switzerland. You had to go to Germany for it. So that upended us completely. Um, and for various reasons, at this point in time, we um, were trying to consider well, where do we go. There were great difficulties with returning to Australia. There were difficulties with going to any number of other places. So we ended up in London, um, largely because there was a supportive uh, school with a nursery attached. So Ivy at this point was 14 months old. The nursery would take her in occasionally from 18 months and it was a fully signing environment. Um, So we were in London for a year. That didn't work out for financial reasons, among other things. So then we went to a different city in England, Birmingham, which is the only city that has another signing nursery in in England. Um, so th- that's your choice, London or Birmingham, if you need a, a, a signing um, 
a signing environment for very young children. And we were there for a few years, which led Ivy into the early years of school, but we were never very happy there. It was never really our place. It was very difficult to deal with the local authorities. Any number of things were difficult and draining. And uh, so when COVID hit, um, Ivy was already on the way out of school before the lockdown came and actually closed schools. So we did a sort of uh, root and branch reassessment of our lives and um, decided, you know, if we, it looks like we're in a situation for the foreseeable future where Ivy will be home educated uh, and where we can provide the things she needs most of the things is there a place we can go that has a community for her that um that we can connect with and get the other things that we can't provide and the answer was yes and it was back in scotland um to a place we'd been before about 20 miles south of edinburgh um which is where we're now settled and uh feeling very well rewarded for making that decision wow wow a lot of moving (laughs) i guess is the really short version (laughs) <laughs> you know, you know, we use the word journey a lot, don't we, these days? But yeah. that really is journeying. That's for yeah. Sure. Yeah. So you, okay, well, let's back up a fraction then. So you were both teaching in Switzerland at a boarding school. What what were you teaching? Well, I was teaching, uh, so there's a, there's a program, a university level program for students in their last two years of secondary school where they can get college credit, university credit by taking advanced courses. So I taught English and history there, and um, Marnie taught languages, so she gave some basic German to English speakers and also taught English to German speakers, and we were both in the school administration as well. So may I suggest that for home education, Ivy is very well placed. That was one of the things that we were recognized very early on yeah, yeah is that yeah. the actual provision of education is we there's very little we could offer materially uh ourselves but that was one thing we could handle yeah terrific and um so ivy was born while you were in switzerland yes and that was all straightforward was it how was the birth process uh it was a little bumpy uh, there weren't any complications at birth that led to anything that came later on but there's a there's a weird kind of retrospective thing so ivy was born about 10 days ahead of schedule so pretty much on time um uh, it was a long labor but she came out okay but then she developed some jaundice for the first two weeks or so which is quite easily treated by um if anyone knows anyone who's had jaundice as a kid, the mm. baby basically goes into an ultraviolet box, a box bombarded with ultraviolet light to um, stimulate, I don't know, the production of the bilirubin. Um, uh, but because it's ultraviolet light, they have to wear like an eye mask. It's dangerous for the eyes. And uh, so we didn't know Ivy was deaf at that time. So for those two weeks, you know, I remember sitting beside the box where you, you not you know they have to just stay in there and it's hard to reach in and touch them and you know just not wanting to let her know that she was alone so I would read aloud to her you know for hours at a time and that was at the time I think a very comforting thing for us but in retrospect you know when we found out that she couldn't hear any of it you just have this 
plummeting feeling in your gut where it's like, oh, we, it was total sensory deprivation for her. Oh, man. And that kind of explained why she was often really, really distressed in there. Um, so, yeah, that was really the only complication, though. And and then what happened was, of course, there's a newborn hearing screening check, which Ivy didn't pass once or twice when we were there and watched the nurse administer it. And the nurse said, no, they often don't pass it the first couple of times because there's, you know, there's stuff in their ears that needs to come out and, you know, we just do it each day. And then we kind of thought, yeah, but okay, but what if, you know, what if she actually can't hear anything? What would that be like? But then at some point overnight, someone did a check, which we didn't see, and they signed off, yes, fine, positive, she can hear. Um, so we got a false, a false positive and, um, you know, didn't think much of it occasionally, you know, it would come up when weird things happened over the next few months, but it wasn't until she was six months old where she wasn't really turning, um, towards voices when she could hear them, when they, when someone was in the room that, mm. that Marnie said, this is not right. And we took it to the pediatrician and the pediatrician said straight away, yeah, she's, she's deaf. That was a false positive. Okay. Goodness. I'm just picturing you reading to her, <laughs> you know, and yeah. that act of love um, means something, of course, but then to sense or to, to discover afterwards that she wasn't able to hear what you were saying. My goodness. Yeah. Listen, am I jumping ahead too far if I ask you, like you have told me that there are now complicating factors in addition to the deafness? Yeah, well, um, yes, kind of together with the deafness. So uh, I've used the term profoundly deaf quite a bit, actually. I should probably say that profound deafness is the most intense, most severe type of deafness. I don't like using the word severe because there's also a category called severe deafness. But profound deafness basically means that, uh, well, as our, as our audiologist put it to us straight off the bat, uh, Ivy was Ivy had to wear headphones when she was six months old in a clinical setting, and those headphones pumped out noise that was the equivalent of a person standing next to a helicopter with both rotors going, and she had no reaction at all. Um, so that's the level that you're at with profound deafness. You really can't hear virtually anything. Um, so Ivy's deafness is the result of a malformation of the inner ear that's really quite rare. Um, the estimates is that it affects about 0.00002% of the population, I think. it's a, We're talking a couple of hundred people in the UK, uh, maximum of all ages. Um, and so this inner ear malformation, A, means that she can't hear, but it because the inner ear is also what regulates balance, like... It gives you kind of a spirit level in your head, so you know when you're yeah. tilting side to side. Yeah, it means she. It means that she she can't really regulate her balance. She has great difficulty doing that using those parts uh, of the body. She relies on her eyes and her proprioception through hands and feet, and then also for this reason, um, she kind of has a a craving for um, sensory stimulation, particularly through the hands and feet. Uh, all the time, you know, she'll, she'll always want to be touching things and moving herself around to get interesting feelings in her, in what, you know, her, her balance um, experience. 
And then uh, recently, in addition to that, uh, she's been diagnosed with ADHD, which is um, very powerful uh, addition to, to the above because the lack of impulse control in her means that, you know, when she's seeking sensory stimulation, she'll often just run and do it without being aware of or considering uh, dangers or other people or things like that. And um, in addition to all of that, uh, she um, she has been identified as a, a highly able person, so she's well above um, her age peers in in you know in learning in in cognitive activity and significantly above what we call her hearing age peers, which means you know she's eight years old, but she's her hearing is only six years old. So in a school setting, she would be grouped with people with children of of that age, that hearing age. And so she's well, well, well above that, which puts her in a category called twice exceptional or uh, DME, dual and multiple exceptionalities, which means that in an educational setting, she requires something above support for for learning above the uh, her age and uh, but she also requires support for um, special needs that typically lead children to lag behind their age so she's pulling in both directions and the institutional support for that essentially doesn't exist I think there's a technical term for the balance issue, the depth of perception and so on. What's yes. that called? It's called vestibular hypofunction. Um, okay. And, yeah, it's a, the depth perception is another thing. So essentially every person who does have uh, does not have an inner ear malformation relies on three things to keep their balance, their eyes, their inner ear structure, and their proprioception, which is through feet and hands. And uh, without one, she relies on the other two, but it also means that, yeah, that sometimes, like, if you're trying to stand on the edge of a swimming pool and look to the bottom of the pool, you're relying on all three. Um, you know, your eyes are connecting with your inner ear structure to tell you that that is quite deep. And she can only sort of see it as a, a flat plane, if you like, almost not in three dimensions. She can't judge the depth. So she knows intellectually that she should not jump into water, <laughs> just like that. But the experience of, of understanding how deep something is is, is um, not available to her. You, you mentioned sensory seeking. Is that what you called it? How, yeah. How does that, that show up? All sorts of ways. Um, if there's any, if she goes into a shop, for example, and there's anything that seems like it's made of a, an interesting feeling fabric or will have an interesting texture, she'll run straight over to it and will brush it or just try to feel what it feels like. Um, but it also means things like, uh, you know, at my parents' place here, to, when you go outside, you have a footpath, which is nice and flat and goes alongside the road. And then next to it, you have sort of ornamental rocks and things which are very unsteady and have sharp angles and whatnot. And you would, you would anticipate that someone who has difficulty balancing would stick to the footpath particularly when there are cars nearby, but her, her feet crave the, the, the unpredictable um, sensory input of those rocks. So yeah, yeah, the yeah. stimulation. Yeah, so she'll just jump onto them and, and try, to, try to balance or, yeah, anything. Anything that, that doesn't feel bland, really, <laughs> is where she goes. 
So is she always reaching out to touch as well? Yep, always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every so, even even to her peril, you know, lots of sharp leaves around here too, and she just cannot sometimes stop you know from just seizing a a palm leaf or something and running her hand along it and, and getting yourself a cut. But just the feeling of it is is what. She- Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What? She's aware of not touching something hot, for example, though. Yeah, she's intellectually aware, yeah, but it, her impulse control really is very, very low. So t- even knowing it, she, it, we literally have conversations about, you know, don't get too close to that, it's really hot. And she'll say, I know, I know, and she'll still be standing there reaching out, you know. Um, so the intellectual knowledge and the, and the kind of experience in the moment are um, not always connected balance so how does she cope with say motion sickness or you know that sort of thing yeah motion sickness is the the funny one that she she doesn't get uh because if you're to get motion sickness you need to have the feeling of imbalance in your head with your inner ear structure and then it comes from like your eyes trying to lock onto a fixed point as you're moving and she, without the, the first thing, her eyes just don't try to lock onto anything. So she doesn't get dizzy. She doesn't get motion sickness. And when we were testing this um, to see, if, you know, if she to diagnose her with this, with this um, vestibular condition, um, I took her down to London once to the ear, nose and throat hospital. And we had to do a test where she sat on my lap. I sat in a chair, a special chair that was mechanized. And she sat on my lap and they attached to her face a gigantic pair of goggles that had cameras on the inside, so the cameras were pointing at her eyes so that they could see on a screen what her eyes were doing um, as she moved. And what happened was the chair just spun around, like pivoted around, um, and I immediately wanted to throw up. I don't like rides at all. I was instantly sick, <laughs> and she just loved it. It was like getting swung around, and, <laughs> and she thought it was like a ride at a fun fair or something. And what the video showed was that, her eyes moved once to try to lock onto something. Like, you know, when you sat on a bus and you look out the window and everything's whipping past, you try to fix on one thing. Her eyes did that once and then that was it. Then there was no attempt to, to sort of stabilise. They just they didn't do it because they weren't getting the, the extra input from the inner ear structure. So she can't get dizzy, as she will proudly tell you if you, <laughs> if you ever discuss it with her. My goodness. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm just picturing... So she's sitting on your lap and you're in this contraption, this chair. So she's with dad. Yeah. So you're you're a, a hands-on dad. Are you you're very involved in everything in her life by the sound of it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um it's uh I I look after her basically on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, so Marnie does um a lot of the strategic long-term stuff like when do we need to book the next appointment and what does this report mean for you know uh, disability allowance or whatever and i 
I'm her shepherd from appointment to appointment and uh, and her educator and uh, just companion, really, yeah, day to day. One of the dynamics, of course, as parents is how we approach these kinds of situations in our lives. And when you got married, obviously, you don't know what's coming. You feel as though you would want to build a life together. You connect, you know, you you communicate and so on. And then you are together in this kind of very complex kind of uh and let's say demanding situation. How have things been with you and Ma- and Marnie? How, how do you share the load? How, how do you get on? Do you have? Uh, are you able to support each other? Do you feel? Yeah, I do now. I think. Uh, uh, I think we. I think we do now. I think. Um, and, and, you know, in the first in the first instance, Marnie was the one. You know, I mean, in the first like year, two years, it was Marnie who was with Ivy all the time and going to those early years interventions and, you know, all that sort of thing, all the appointments. And then we kind of split it uh, for a, a couple of years after that, three or four years after that. And then around the time Ivy was five was when I really took over quite a bit more. And I think um, I think it was really hard in those early years. I think uh, particularly in the in those two or three years in between where we were trying to do it 50-50. I, I didn't really know what to do to support Marnie. I think she tried to support me as much as she could, but she didn't know either, and I didn't know what kind of support I needed. And uh, it was kind of a – it was just a long, a really long period of grasping around in the dark and not being sure of what either of us really wanted or were doing or whether we were doing it right. Um and just a lot of anxiety and and uncertainty, and I think part of it, part of it came from, um, part of it came from like a real imbalance, I think, between the three of us as a family. Like I think we were rightly very concerned with Ivy as an individual, this particularly in the early years and kind of, you know, oriented our entire lives around meeting that need, um, much to the detriment of our own needs. And I, and so we kind of have been progressively, like, trying to rebalance it so that, you know, it's a compromised situation. Nobody gets everything that they want. But if everybody's getting a little bit of just what they need to, to keep going and support themselves and support each other, then it's, it's more manageable and it feels a bit less crisis mode which is a strange thing to say because it's for us it's been really it has been the last two years that we've gotten into that it has been the COVID years Um, and I think that's an odd thing for someone to say that's been their experience of the COVID years is that you're getting out of crisis mode and how did how did that that happen why why would the COVID years do that the the well because well I guess it all comes back to to where we were before, and Ivy's the the Ivy's dual and multiple exceptionality. So where we got to was a stage, I guess, around 2017, 2018, where Ivy was in a school for deaf children, meaning that sign language was was the primary language, language of instruction with English support, um, and uh, and we were told 
and this is this is there's only a very few number of these schools across across Britain. Uh, we were told that um, the school couldn't meet her needs anymore, and the needs that it couldn't meet were her intellectual needs. So the school sort of sent us off on a mission to find an alternative school for Ivy. So over, I guess, the period of about 18 months, we invested just a ridiculous number of hours and a ridiculous amount of money into travelling the country, to the south of England, up to Scotland, out west. We went just about everywhere that there was a primary school for deaf children to try to find somewhere that could take her. Um, and we're preparing to upend our lives all over again to try and get this next place to work, wherever it was. And um, what it came down to was that there was a place in the Midlands, it's near Birmingham, the area around it, that wasn't a deaf school. It was a mainstream school that was willing to um, kind of make the necessary accommodations for Ivy according to what had been identified as her as her needs by doctors and professionals. And so with this head teacher of this school and the head teacher of the school she was at, we went to the local authority and we put all the reports and we find, we got all these agreements in a meeting, it's a meeting that went on for days and days. We finally got this agreement that Ivy would go to this school um, in September 2019. And then the local authority just stopped playing ball. They took out parts of the accommodations that they'd agreed to in the written plan, I mean. So then the school that she was, Ivy was supposed to go to said, well, we can't do it if that doesn't work, and everybody was dragging their heels, and this is around September, October 2019, and it got to the point where Ivy was coming out of school more often for a day and or coming out early, and I was giving her the things that she wasn't getting at school educationally, so it felt like we had the worst of both worlds where... <laughs> Essentially, we had to give her her education, but also we had to get into these long arguments about where she should go to school. And then, you know, it was all just it kind of all just fell apart around that time for us, the whole structure. And we knew that the school that she was at wouldn't take her for another year. She would be kind of excluded by, by attrition or by refusal. And then in March, that was COVID and everybody was out of school. And I... I kind of looked at it and thought I looked at it and thought if I can get this right in this incredibly stressful and unprecedented time if I can take Ivy's education and give her what she needs as as you know the the advanced material that she needs in a home setting then we don't have to be here because the other infrastructure that we had here is already gone and that meant that if we didn't have to be there, we could be anywhere that would be, in theory, <laughs> finances providing uh, you know, certain opportunities. We could, we could go somewhere else where Marnie and I could rebalance things in a way that suited our lifestyles and our needs and our wants and hopes for the future. So that was, that was kind of why the crisis was an opportunity um, a big reset button for us. You know, that 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 just when everything collapsed with the lockdown, then we didn't have the services that we'd depended on and fought for up to that point. They just stopped in Britain. They, I, I don't really know how it was in Australia, but in Britain, it all just stopped. Yeah. Um, for three months, we were without, just without. It was just us. 
And once we saw that we could do some of the basic things, certainly not the medical things, but some of the basic things that we thought we couldn't do, then we we could sort of look around and say, well, where can we get the medical things to kind of supplement the bits that we can do if we take on home education full time? And that's what we did. That's where we ended up. Okay. You know, that makes that makes sense. I, I understand now. Um, going back for a second to you and Marnie, you know, there's no getting around the fact that a lot of the parents that we're in touch with, uh, a lot of the peas are doing it on their own because they're, partnership didn't survive or hasn't lasted and they're single parents usually single mums and it's a reality that just adds that extra dimension so I'm glad to hear you say that things are okay now and and that you're working through those things well done to both of you for making that happen and you know I don't pretend that there won't be any further bumps along the way but good on you for getting to that point and you know, looking after each other is such a big part of looking after Ivy, is it not? It is, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, and she, as I say, she's a very compassionate person, which means I guess she's very aware mm. of people's emotional states, particularly when they're not talking about them. Um, so she would be right onto it if if things weren't. <laughs> If now, things weren't working for us. It strikes me that uh, your parents and Marnie's parents are in Australia. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So you've had this whole experience, this whole journey without the support of grandparents and an extended family. How's that been? Um, I wouldn't want to say without because there are ways that they have um, supported us that are that, that have been very important. But um, it, let's say not in their presence for the most part. That's certainly true. Um, I don't know, Gary, what can I say? Um, just taking the broadest view, I, I guess I should say first that my experience is that people, not just family, but everybody in proximity to us as parents of a, a child with special needs are, are unpredictable and a mixed bag. And, um, that means that I have been very surprised, pleasantly surprised, by people who had no prior connection to us, by people who had only a very peripheral connection to us at the beginning, who really understood what was happening and stepped up when they really had no call to do any of that. It was not their responsibility. And so, you, you know, on the one hand, you really do get that sort of thing from people who, who you just, you know, you grow close to because they were they were strangers before and then by showing understanding they became friends and or closer friends. Um, and that's, I guess, the soft way of saying that family too has been a mixed bag. Um, we went in not with any expectations because we didn't know what we were getting into when Ivy was diagnosed, but with hopes um, or assumptions that that if you say if you say something as basic as uh, the initial diagnosis was that Ivy would never hear, um, and that even if she got a cochlear implant, it may not work for her. 
And that was the diagnosis that held for the first three years of her life. So if you go in and you say to people who are very close to you that this is the situation and here's a child who you know is, is literally like a one-year-old kid who may never hear and will rely on signing for communication, I guess I had the assumption that that meant that the adults in the room wouldn't recognize that adults have to take on the responsibility of, of, of learning something new and dealing with it that way. Uh, and I mean, some did and some didn't and some tried, but it kind of fell away. And, you know, friends who were there at the start were not there, uh, a few months later and, you know, all those sorts of things and family, it's, you know, it's still difficult with family. Um, my parents, yeah, have been very supportive. Marnie's parents are, are supportive and interested. Um, the degrees of that vary quite dramatically. Equally, um, you know, I, there's an immediate family member who I'm essentially estranged from uh, for reasons intimately connected to uh, Ivy's needs and everything we've been through and I guess what I would describe as just an inability to uh, accept um, the way things are. So how was it to not be close to these people? It was really, um, it was, I guess it was very difficult uh, it, it was very difficult for both of us because, yeah, we were just without relief in a very fundamental sense. Um, but I also don't want to, uh, I don't want to downplay the reality that we were unexpectedly compensated by the generosity of the people who were around us, even though they weren't family. What's the name of the place you're living in that's just outside of Edinburgh? It's called Inner Leithen. And so how long have you been settled there now? We've been there uh, nearly two years. Um, we, we had been there before to visit a bit um, before COVID and then we, it was about a month, six weeks into the first lockdown where we said that's the place we need to go. So um, this and then is a it was small it, small town, is it? Yeah, there's about thirty five hundred people there. But one of the reasons that took us there is that the throughout the Scottish borders, um, which is the area it's in, there's a very strong home education community. Um, about I would say from from the people Ivy interacts with, there's maybe a, a quarter to a third of the kids there have additional needs. Some of them are flexi schooled, so the school does their education and they have a lot of time out. So that was important important for us, um, that, that we were going to a place where that, that kind of thing existed and we could connect with people. And then there's also a very strong deaf community in Edinburgh itself, and Edinburgh is um, it's about 45 minutes away for us, so quite accessible. Um, and Ivy has lately met, you know, for the first time in her life, three other girls between six and eight the six and nine, so her age range with cochlear implant, you know. Uh, so it, it, in kind of th that was not something we expected, you know. It's just something that has turned up and that we'd, we'd hoped was there because the, 
the community is there, but but we finally kind of found that for her. Um, some aged peers who are who are just like her. So, would you say all of you have made some profound connections there? You've got some real community there. Uh, yeah, I I would definitely say that. I would definitely say that of the places we've been over the last eight years, the strongest community is there right now. And how about other dads? Are you in touch with other dads? Um, rarely. <laughs> really? That's, uh, yeah. Uh, even the, uh, yeah. Even then, even the, uh, you know, with, with a large home education community, it's very, I'm, I am, I am the only man I see most of the time in those settings. Um, which how is tough. You, how are you with that? <laughs> It's, um, it, you know, I'm okay with it. I think I'm, I'm the kind of person who will sort of accept things as they are when you when you front up to something. But um, there are times when it is really strange and a little bit disorienting and alienating. I'm thinking particularly of you know, just just even this is like three weeks ago. You know where I was in a regular meetup with it's again it's all women and there, there was just a conversation about how how hopeless the men are how hopeless men are <laughs> in when it comes to parenting and i not just as a one-off comment but like oh why what are the reasons for this you know is it because of x you know this sort of relationship at birth is it, it was a long conversation and i just didn't say anything i thought wow it's like on the one hand that's very very alienating. On the other hand, I recognise that it's probably a compliment that they don't think of me as um, as, as a man like as that. I dad. think they just weren't thinking of me that way. No, yeah, as a dad, it was as one of the mums, really. Um, yeah, but so so I mean, it's it's kind of a mixed thing. Um, but I guess strange enough to be noticeable often for me. Isn't that interesting? I, yeah. I've had a very similar experience and often the question is, you know, what's strange here? What's wrong with me? What's right with me? What's going on here? How come there's no other dads around? And is that good or bad and so on? But it is the reality for, for many of us. And uh, let's talk about dadness then for a second or maleness. You know, I mean, none of us goes into parenthood knowing exactly what to expect. We, we see what's possible, but, you know, we don't know what's coming. You, when you became a dad, um, how did you get on with your dad? Um, yeah, I guess I get on with my dad okay. I, I Honestly, actually, I never really thought about that. I don't think I've really given a lot of, a lot of thought to the depth of our relationship. But, I, I mean, my dad was always... My dad was a very, you know, we're from a working class family where my dad was holding down multiple jobs. And so my dad was always very busy, but he was never not supportive of things that I wanted to do, um, even when they diverged quite radically from his interests. So I, I can't say that, that he was a bad or neglectful dad at all. Okay. And the things that this has drawn out of you as a person, like becoming a dad and becoming specifically Ivy's dad, mm. um, would you say you're? What's that brought out in you? Uh, I, um, 
is it weird to say that I that I often feel as alienated amongst dads as I do amongst the mothers that I tend to work with? I mean, it's funny. And so you've just said that I've never considered um, really measuring myself or looking at myself in relation to my own dad. The way I tend to do it is to look at myself in relation to the dads that I do see and know who may not be in our immediate circle, but friends, you know, from before and abroad. And I, when I see them in action, you know, my peers really, I feel very much on the outside of whatever it is that they're doing, which is what I think of as, as being a dad. I think they, they have, you know, most dads who that I know that don't have special needs kids, they have a, a, an, there's an easiness and kind of a simplicity to the interactions between them and their kids that is just not, is just not me. And I just feel like that's kind of inaccessible to me uh, that, that, you know, because in any interaction with my daughter, I'm managing things, communication, danger awareness, and then, you know her, and then comes like the 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 meaningful interactions, the the things that she wants to talk about and and think over, and they're very complex. And I I don't see that in my peers. So I feel like, uh, wow, I feel I feel like whatever I've got is something a little bit different from mainstream fatherhood. It's more like, um, well. One thing that people remark on when they see me and Ivy in interaction is that we're more like peers than anything, that I talk to her like an adult and she talks to me like an adult. And I think I think that's right. I think she that that when I'm just with Ivy, when I'm being her father, I'm not a dad like the other dads are a dad. It's more like I'm a person and she recognizes me as a person. And being a father is just one aspect of the whole person. And and she she kind of acknowledges that. So it's it's a different it's a different quality of interaction to what I see elsewhere. And I don't know if that's a if that's a positive or a negative. You know, I, I say I feel a bit alienated, but I also feel a bit sorry for my peers who don't who when they're interacting with their kids that they don't they, they are seen as dad and not as a person with dad as a component. I think that that could be a loss for them. Um, I guess that's a very complex answer. That, that, I don't know if it makes much sense, but I just yeah, I can't really articulate what it feels like to be on the outside of of that thing that I think of as dadness. I don't think I've got it. I think I've just got something else. Daniel, you, uh, I have so appreciated this conversation. You, um, you have this most wonderful daughter and, you know, by the sound of the way you speak about her, it's quite clear that she has the most wonderful dad also. And I just wanted to say to you, you're a bloody good dad and, you know, thank you for sharing all of this. Before we wrap things up, was there something you wanted to touch on that we missed that you felt was really important to say? Um, yeah, I just wanted to pick up on um, 
I just want to pick up on on just an experience that I haven't mentioned yet, but also it kind of connects to what I was saying about about family and expectations. And um, I think it, um, the the probably one of the most difficult things that we've been through in the last eight years was on Ivy's third birthday. Um, and this is so. In other words, this is after we'd already moved twice, and we're starting to get things in place. And we'd had these conversations in the January that things were starting to look up, and you know maybe we were getting back on our feet a little bit. And then Ivy's birthday, of course, is in April, usually around Easter. And then on that day, Ivy contracted meningitis, mm. and um, it's meningitis is a risk for any kids it's higher for kids who have cochlear implants because the implant requires opening up the blockage between the outside world and the brain so the bacteria can get in more easily and it's even more of a risk for kids like ivy who don't have an inner ear structure because there is nothing to block it so it was bound to happen and it looks like it could be a recurrent problem throughout her life anyway Anyone who has been through anything like that will know the sheer terror of it. Um, that you know, when when I went rushed Ivy to hospital, I was with her. I rushed her to hospital in a in an ambulance. She was well and truly out of it. We didn't know if she would wake up. We didn't know if she would die. We didn't know if she would um, recover with none of the function that she had before. Um, there were just days there where she was out of it and we did not know what, what was going to happen, you know, when, whenever she came around, if she did. Um, and it really threw up into the air just everything that we'd already done up to that point. There was, I, ha I remember having, in addition to the terror, just this incredible anger and rage that we had already sacrificed Everything, our entire life before was gone. My career was gone. Marnie's job was in the gutter. Our friends were not there. We were far away from everything. Parents had tried to rise to the task. Some had, and it was just like there was so much. And then it just felt like this massive smackdown just at the moment when we were thinking, okay, maybe we can get out of it. And, you know, like a massive punch in the face. And, I reckon that anger stayed with me for a long time afterwards, even when Ivy did recover. And it is, and it, yeah, and it is something that I can feel um, kind of, it, is, it gets antagonised a bit when, when I um, encounter people who just don't know or don't care about what we've had to do to just deal with the basics of life over the last few years, you know. And so it, it, I guess the takeaway is that if you're a father who goes through that or a parent who goes through something extreme like that and you do have that incre incredible anger, um, that it's easy to hold it against people who, who remind you of it, who bring it back in some way. and. I, it took me a while to get to the point where I realized just how exhausting that is and how it just 
warps you as a person. And I think it takes real effort and practice to let go of those forms of anger, particularly when they do come at moments of intense trauma, in a word. But it's so worth it, you know, and I think I've only been able to come back to the last few years because of making a concerted effort to just say the anger that's there is not worth it. You've just got to let it go. And sometimes that means letting people go, um, and that can be worth it too, which is a bit of a taboo thing to say, I think. But anything you can do to not live with that feeling is to the good, I think. And I think probably some men could do with hearing something like that. I know I could have much earlier than now. Daniel, it's been great talking to you, man. Thank you. Thank you, Gary.